Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, our regular podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Tanya Tagak is a powerful, visceral voice from Nunavut in Canada's north. Her work is rooted in traditional Inuit throat singing, but that barely scratches the surface of her fiercely innovative fusion of old and new. Whether it's unforgettable performances dedicated to the murdered and missing Aboriginal women in Canada, or her stunning work on Bjork's Medulla, Tagak never ceases to push boundaries with her voice. She discussed her roots and the struggles her people still face in her lecture at the 2016 Red Bull Music Academy, along with host Anupa Mystery. It's a powerful listen. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please do stay tuned after the lecture. But for now, enjoy this bit of couch wisdom. Please welcome to the Red Bull Music Academy in Montreal, Tanya Tagak. Well, let's talk a little bit about something that I think many people here won't be able to witness, which is where you're from. Mm. Can you tell people about where it is that you're from and what it's like there? Yeah, I'm from Nunavut, uh, territory of Canada, by the North Pole. And my family originated in Pond Inlet before my mother was relocated by the government to Resolute Bay. Uh, They moved to Cambridge Bay, where I was born and raised, and... It's a tiny, tiny little town. It was about 1,200 people when I was growing up. And no roads out, no highways, no ways to get off the island. And the nearest town, probably 300 miles away, and an equally small town. So there was no access to the south, no internet. And I remember growing up, I just thought it was so terrible because that wasn't where the action was. But now that I've traveled around a bit, I realize how beautiful it was to be able to grow up there with nature so, is so prominent. Like the land owns us, like we are part of the land, not us owning land, not foolish enough to think that we own the land at all. So it was beautiful there. Uh, schools closing at about minus 50. Like the little kids wouldn't have to go to school. And 24-hour darkness for three months in the winter and uh, 24-hour sun in the summertime. So it's kind of like one long one long day. The year was like one long day. And we'd stay inside in the winter and that's when most people would get pregnant. <laughs> and... Uh, then, then outside all summer, like uh, little kids playing even at two in the morning outside, we wouldn't keep the children inside during that time. <clears throat> and a massive abundance of life during that 24-hour sun period, like we'd have birds migrating all the way from Mexico because everything was so frozen and stark and no vegetation or anything in the winter. So in the summer, it's this huge burst of life and it's the time for harvest and I go up every year for the Arctic char run I go and get nice and fat uh, fish fat and eat fresh Arctic char out of the water and then come back down to this 
craziness. <laughs> but yeah, it was really beautiful growing up there. And I'm super happy I got to grow up there. Uh, there was no high school when I was growing up, so I had to leave to residential school to go to high school. But it was different because that was a choice. Like, uh, the police didn't tell me I had to go, like previous generations of residential school. And it was only for high school. And I actually had a not-too-bad time in residential school. It was weird. It was like jail. Like, I wasn't used to the the rules and the minutes of my time and the chores and everything being, all my time being accounted for. and But it taught me, um, it was a good stepping stone to get down to university later. So it was actually not that bad of a, an experience for me, but if you consider the legacy of residential schools, it's, I'm not going to say it was a good thing. <laughs> Can you maybe um, talk a little bit about that for the people who, who don't know what residential schools are? Mm-hmm. Um, you'd be sitting in your house and police would come like, wee, wee, and take your children and drive them away. Wee, wee, wee. Specifically. <laughs> and uh, you might not see them again. Yeah. Like uh, oh, 50,000 children were put in residential schools over that um, throughout the last few generations in Canada and it was a legal you were legally obliged to to do it and there was a lot of very terrible things like uh, the government doesn't really want to admit what's going on and there's always these like inquiries but you only have to ask indigenous people what actually happened like they say between three and six thousand children died in residential school but I think the number amongst our own talkings is around 25 thirty thousand children there were uh, documented cases of electric chairs, children forced to eat their own vomit, children beaten, children raped, like on a regular basis, and uh, whipped for speaking Inuktitut or any of their own languages. Very, very, very terrible things. And that was right, right before my time, right? So recently, not that long ago. So it's a huge impact on uh, indigenous population in Canada that a lot of Canadians aren't really privy to this information because the government doesn't want people to know how how bad it was and what happened. Like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has done a massive amount of work and, and it's, you can check it out. But it's very sad, like people I've talked to where, you know, they were raped or they get pregnant from a priest and they just throw their newborn in the fire because they're not supposed to be valued. And like people just dying, like pur- purposely making the children ill or there's mass graves all over Canada that people don't know about yet. And it's our legacy. It's our whole country's legacy. It's every single person's responsibility to understand our history and why things are the way they are. Like, people know about the statistics. People know that we live, you know, with unemployment. They know we live with addictions. They know we live with all of these terrible things, but never see why. And it's because when you take an entire demographic, all these children, and and destroy them and rape them and hurt them, and if they make it home, what kind of parents are they after 10 years of that abuse? 
you know? So it's a very, very important thing that Canadians understand when you see us living under these conditions that it's completely and 100% at the hand of our government. So when we're speaking out against the government, it's coming from a true place because why are we so expected to trust the system when it's the system that's been done to us, that's been doing these things? And <clears throat> there's so many, so many facets of this conversation that people are so uncomfortable discussing. Like there's reason that there's poverty like, you know, the, if the treaty systems, the constitutional treaties have been respected, indigenous populations would be very, very well off. So we get blamed in this society for living in an impoverished way or blamed for having addictions. And addictions come from trauma. And uh, one thing I've noticed statistically is that if you look at um, veterans, war veterans, PTSD, and indigenous populations, the statistics are shockingly similar when it comes to addiction, homelessness, you know, suicide. All these things come with trauma. So it's only by discussing these things and being aware that we can kind of shift the perspective of the average Canadian to help push the government into righting the wrongs that have been done to us because we they didn't kill us, we're not dead, they didn't kill us, we're here and we're not going away and we're the fastest growing population in Canada and you know I believe that we're going to come up even stronger and it's, it's going to be beautiful but we all need to um, be aware and work together to make sure that that happens and be responsible for those uh, attitudes to be shifted, for the racism to be shifted. It's a little bit intense sometimes having to deal with the way people look at me or look at my children and knowing that I'm more in harm's way than you are. I don't feel like that's a good way to be living and I don't think anyone in this room would want it that way either. So it's just our responsibility to make sure that we help each other. I think um, maybe something else that people might not know is that when kids were sent to residential schools, part of what happened there is there is a loss of, of language and a loss of, of culture, which came along with that. And so for what you do, that was something that you rediscovered. It wasn't necessarily something that was passed on to you by some, like you know, your mother or someone immediately in your family. Although she did send you music, but but it wasn't like a traditional inheritance, uh, uh, you know, the way we might think of of something cultural like that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, well, if you look at Nunavut, it spans across the entire country, right? So, if you think about someone from Newfoundland and someone from Vancouver, you wouldn't you wouldn't expect people to be that bounded in culture, but um, circumpolar people have a lot of similarities, typically have a lot of similarities. And uh, the, the, where we're from, Pond Inlet, people are still speaking a lot of Inuktitut and there's throat singing and it was less touched by the residential school system, but where we moved to in Cambridge Bay, 
Um, I was five when we moved there and uh, was fluent in Inuktitut. And when we got there, even the elders would say speak English and the other kids would say not to speak Inuktitut and there was no throat singing and it was everyone wanted to assimilate everybody thought this is the way God's the way English is the way this is how we're going to progress so my community um, lost a bit of that for a long time I didn't grow up with throat singing so it was really wonderful in my 20s to kind of find that outlet to celebrate my culture because it was very difficult when I first went down to Halifax like there's so many funny stories like I remember (laughs) we went down to Halifax and I was it's a small city but I couldn't stand the smell of the car exhaust anymore I couldn't stand looking at people's faces and they'd be telling me a lie and I couldn't just say to them quit lying I can tell like you have to pretend like "Mm -hmm." like I wasn't I wasn't I wasn't used to that and I was really missing home and I remember sitting in the park (laughs) there were were ducks everywhere and I was like don't kill one don't kill one don't kill one (laughs) because it's like they're just sitting there (laughs) take one and pluck it so funny I just wasn't used to seeing them around he's used to hunting them like all these little things, and my friends are like, "No, you can't kill the ducks. Like, don't, don't do that." But the cultural differences were very vast, and I was super lonely and and getting um, upset at always being the only Inuk around. Because every culture, that's why I get mad when people are like, "I don't see color." It's like it's not about color; it's about culture and some your colors attached to your culture like everybody has a different culture different way of thinking different language different ideas on what is right and what is wrong so I was really lonely so when my mom sent me a tape of some throat singing and I heard the land on it and I got so happy and it just came out of my mouth like I had no musical training I never expected to be a musician ever and it just happened, it just, I remember um, with the cassette tape, like listening to it and flipping it over and over and over and over again and then just feeling the vibration in my throat and throat singing in the shower every morning. My roommates are like, what the fuck are you doing in there? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, but uh, so throat singing came and kind of woke up my bones a little bit. And it made sense. And it was a way to kind of take some of my culture and have it have it in me. What music were you into, though, growing up? Well, this is really, really awesome. In that remote, high Arctic community, Resolute Bay, my dad had a record player, and he took us to St. Lucia, so there'd be these Inuit in the 70s really into Peter Tosh, and the way before they were, Bob Marley, way before they were listening to it here. But um, my dad listened to lots of Jimi Hendrix and Beatles and Doors and just all that, Janis Joplin that it was always playing in my house. So when people ask me, well, how did you come up with the idea to mix these genres? It's like, no, they were just all living in my body anyway. It's not a decision that was made. It just 
whatever you grow up with when you're a child, your environment, it's just happening around you, you're just absorbing, you know, so it's later in life when your body stops physically growing, I feel like you can start expelling a little bit. I want people to get a, a bit more of a sense of kind of the history of throat singing. Um, can you tell people, I guess, how it originated? Yeah, throat singing is so awesome. Um, it's thousands of years old. Like, uh, is one of the oldest songs known, and it goes back so many generations. And traditional Inuit throat singing is done with two women face-to-face, and it's a friendly competition. Like, it's not meant to be this big spiritual thing. It's a vocal competition, a mental competition, to see who's and who has the most lung capacity and this this quickest mind to switch back and forth. Like, um, there's usually a split of sounds, and they fit together like puzzle pieces. Like, say... Like the river song, like when one person is doing, the other person is doing, and like so it sounds back and forth. Like so, there's always this, so it's like uh, the tradition. You switch, switch the songs quickly too. You can switch from leader to follower, and. Um, it's really fun. And uh, when, when people are watching it, sometimes they don't understand why it ends in laughter. But when you're this far from somebody's face <laughs> making these sounds, and like my cousin, like she'd purposely, if you want to win, like you could eat garlic or like make faces and trying to kind of throw the other one off to, to, to win the competition. Right, so it's that's where it originates from, and it's very friendly and very joyous. So it's a, a, a mimicry of a lot of the land and animals, and circumstance, and some sometimes telling stories that Kimarlopik is about um, one of the small husky pups who's watching the sled dogs run away and it wants to go with them but it's too small and it's trying to follow but the 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 ice it keeps slipping on the ice its little legs are slipping on the ice it's a really endearing song so cute so you learned this on your own you didn't learn it at you know with a partner or, or with someone else well, that's the thing is um, without that loss of culture, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now because I was self-taught and then learned the traditional songs later by uh, fellow throat singers as the years went by. So I can do the traditional throat singing, but I was initially self-taught and would always be listening to music and find myself throat singing along to it and then realize it was so percussive that it could go with almost anything. It can it can be a vehicle for almost any any tone of or feeling. So it's just I've heard people uh, singing it with Celtic songs and at raves. I've anything you know it can just go with anything. So early on, you 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 did throat singing with Bjork. Do you want to tell us about that? Well, she was just the catalyst for me becoming a musician. I was at a festival for my, um, 
trained as a painter, and then I was teaching at the Nunavut Arctic College, and I had all these paintings, and I was brought my paintings to the Great Northern Arts Festival in Inuvik, and I was really excited to be this painter, and very happy with my paintings that I'd put work into. I felt like I was kind of going somewhere with them. And then we got drunk around the fire, the festival director and the and a bunch of people, and I did some throat singing for them. And the next day there was weather or the plane was canceled and one of their acts couldn't come in and the festival director asked me to get up on stage and do this throat singing, like improvise with just whoever was there. Had you performed in public before that? No, no, not really, no. no. And uh, at my friend's wedding, yeah. Yeah, so I... I was so scared, and then I got on stage, and I was like, this is where I belong. <laughs> I found my home. Like, it, it just, I just took to it. I was like, how was I not doing this for the first, you know, 27 years of my life or whatever? And um, I was having so much fun. And then these people came up to me afterwards and said, do you mind if we record a bit of what you do? And I was like, okay, like, no problem. And I gave them some vocal recordings. And then two weeks later, I got a call from Bjork saying she wanted me to go down to New York City and meet her. And it turns out these guys that recorded me had been her friends. And they were there just checking out the festival. So they, they showed that recording to her. And then I ended up going on world tour on the Vespertine tour. So it just was like, okay, I'm a singer now. <laughs> like, if I'm good enough for her, then I can make this happen. So it was really kind of just fluky. And then... Um, That's the craziest fluke of all time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I know, I didn't, I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. Were you a fan of Bjork? Oh, yeah, okay. of course. Like, it's hard not to be. And then um, I got sick and had to come off the tour. But she said, we'll work together again. So a couple of years went by, and then um, I was living in Spain, and she she called and flew us to... My baby, Naya, was only four months old. She flew us to the Canary Islands, and we were in the like volcanic mountains recording. It was so nice. And there's a lovely story about the song Ancestors, like, um, she put me on five songs on Medulla, and we had been recording for three days over her stuff, and I asked her if I could give her an improvised piece with no music behind it. So I gave her a 20-minute piece, and she asked us all to leave the studio, <clears throat> and she said, hey, come check this out. And she had recorded a song years and years ago and never used it. And she took a segment of the improvised piece and placed it on top of the song and that's what it is. There's no chop up, it just happened to fit exactly. So when you listen to the song Ancestors, like every time we're getting loud at the same time or singing in the same way, that's just completely by chance. So it's a, another just chance thing. And I just believe in, I really, really believe in surrender. Like the, you can ask the, guys I work with, I don't tell them what to do or how to play or anything. And uh, the video we just released with Chad Van Galen, 
we had a fo- one phone call and I just wanted him to do what he wanted to. So I think it comes, there's just this attitude at home, like my brothers both live less than five minutes away from my mom's house and when they haven't visited for a long time, I get so jealous because I can't visit my parents all the time and my brothers are there and sometimes I'll be talking to my mom and she'll say they haven't visited and I go, oh, that's, why aren't they visiting? They should visit more. And she'd say, I don't want people to visit that don't want to come. <laughs> and it's kind of this, don't control other people. Like, don't control what they're doing. If you want, if I want to collaborate, it's because I want the people I'm collaborating with, I want to taste them. I want them to be present. I don't want people to fall into my ranks. I want to share equally. And uh, I find artistically that's the best way for me to work. But because there's so much gravity and there's so much importance to what you're doing, I mean, is there not a vetting process, but like a bit of an educating process that you go through with some of your collaborators when you're working with them? No, I've learned to trust myself. I don't work with people I don't totally understand and like right away. If you're fucking sketchy or weird, I'm just not, I don't care how famous you are, like, fuck off. (laughs) Like, uh, really, I I don't care. I don't care how rich you are. I don't care how poor you are. I don't care. It's because... um, this is sacred to me. And it it's like sleeping with somebody. It's like you don't sleep with somebody you don't like. So there's never, when I'm working with people, there's never this kind of question mark or me schooling. or Like it's, it's just like, oh, this is happening. This makes total sense. Like, for example, um, with Shad, mm-hmm. I mean, I love, you know, 90s hip-hop, 80s hip-hop, but I'm not that into it now. Because I find it a little, like, I want to like it more. Like, I really want to like Drake, and I like him, and I like him and his person and everything, but sometimes his music is kind of like, I'm sure he doesn't get mine either, but <laughs> but we're working with Shad, he's hip-hop, uh, you know, and I just really enjoy, I met him at Polaris, and we just instantly were friends, and when you find somebody that you're friends with and you already know you can trust them, then that's a good indication to work together. And the regrets I have in my life are always sharing time, energy, or creativity with people that are using it uh, for ego or to hurt or to don't aren't healthy inside or are, are going to try to take advantage. So... It's just sometimes people will be very angry that I'm not going to work with them. Um, But for example, this man, this composer, he flew all the way from Italy. Like I won't use names, but uh, we had signed this contract. We were going to work together and put on this opera at Pavarotti's Theater. And it was going to be really awesome. I was so excited about it. And he flew to Winnipeg, where I was living at the time, and just to connect with me. And right away when I walked in the room, like just a little bit of the way he was posturing with me, like he was 
doing something, you know, like, you know, doing something. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Um, and he, it turns out he was um, trying to penetrate the concepts of good and evil as, as humans constructs, constructs. And I agree with that. Like, you know, when a wolf kills a caribou, it's not evil. And it's hard to find, like, you know, true the true idea of good and evil. But he was so into this idea and so kind of removed from his thought process. And I respect him as an artist, but I just don't work that way. He had gone, he wanted to see what the most evil thing in the world was that humans do. So he went and interviewed all these women that had like gone crazy and killed their own children. And he wanted me to say the words of these women and sing while these words went behind me. And I just thought, are you fucking crazy? Like, I'm a mother. I'm a mother. What would it be like if my kids saw me performing this? Why would I invite this energy into my children, into my life, into my psyche? Like, those women that did that are sick people, and I'm not inviting that sickness into myself or my children. And he was so upset really angry with you well I flew all the way from Italy and it's like so fuck you who cares like <laughs> you know like people can get really strangely demanding when it comes to their ideas of art and their ideas of ego and other other forms of art that I don't agree with can be fantastic and good it just doesn't mean that I have to be part of it you know like it's I don't know. People are just strange. <laughs> so I want I want you to talk a little bit about some of your messages, but I think first we can play the video of that Polaris performance because because then we can see a little bit of what you do. But also I think um, well, I mean there were messages, many messages that came mm -hmm. out of out of that performance. So let's watch you perform at the Polaris Music Prize in 2014. So, <laughs> what happened after that? <laughs> you won the, well, you, well, okay, so the first thing that happened was you won the prize. Uh, mm. It would have been weird if you didn't win the prize after performing that in front of a room full of people, but you did. But there was screens behind you um, with names on the screens, and, and you were trying to say something there. Can you tell us what you were trying to say? with that performance? Yeah, um, now it's, since the 80s, there's been um, 1,800 missing and murdered in Indigenous women. And uh, it's, uh, I'm four times more likely to be murdered. And my daughters are four times more likely to be murdered than any other racial demographic in Canada. And we, we go missing. And people like to... Um, spread spread lies and myths like saying it's sex workers or only our people doing this but we're being hunted too and it's dangerous and it's very scary so I think this in the collective of Canadian consciousness there's just been this numb out of caring 
of just so Canada's so great. It's not some great country. It's so peaceful here. <laughs> so multicultural. <laughs> like there's a lot of like, sorry, <laughs> so bitchy. <laughs> And it's not like that at all. Not when you're indigenous. You know, not when you're many things. And I wanted names. I got sick of saying, oh, the missing and murdered women, missing and murdered women. I wanted names. And recently, Annie Pujuo was found dead. I don't know. Um, a prominent uh, a Canadian, a, a well-known Canadian visual artist. Mm-hmm. Really awesome Inuk lady. But I wanted the names. I wanted to people people to see the list. And it scrolled and it scrolled and it scrolled and it scrolled. And just for people started realizing um, as the performance went on. Like in particular the list of Jane Doe's. It's very, very heartbreaking. Where there's no name attached. Their family will never know. These violent deaths that were... Um, expected to just endure, that the families are expected to endure, and that we're supposed to so peacefully protest. I'll turn the other cheek every time and educate. We're supposed to tell people about how it is and why it is the way it is. And, and yeah, not only do we have to live under these conditions, but we're supposed to be so polite about when we talk about it. That's what makes me the most mad. So when we're supposed to, um, don't be angry. Why are you being so hostile? You're being rude. Like, that's when I get something inside of me that isn't nice at all. It's not good. And I'm very lucky I get to um, express this on stage because I almost get the things that come up inside of me when I think about these things, when I think about my own family and what we've been through and my friends and people I love and what we have to go through every day in comparison to the lives other people get to have. I don't feel like... Um, not that everybody doesn't go through strife, but I, I just don't feel anymore like it's my responsibility to take one more drop, one more ounce, one more sentence of bullshit from anyone ever again because I don't want to be pulled out of a river you know and when Annie was pulled out of that river this policeman from Ottawa made all these remarks did you see that <clears throat> oh indigenous people do have short lifespans anyway she was drunk and fell in the river this isn't missing and murdered women like and this is a police officer and a lot of people don't understand that. Why don't you call the police? Like for the majority of you in here, like calling the police means somebody's going to come help you. But quite often the police force is, that's who's doing stuff to us too, right? Like, so it's kind of hard. Where do we turn? We had this discussion yesterday. This is kind of a thing I think about a lot is... You know, animals get very dangerous when you corner them. And, you know, when we were forced off the land into communities, and relocated, forced, our own judicial system was taken away and replaced by a foreign judicial system. And the foreigners were the ones doing these terrible things to us. And then also forced into an economic system that we weren't accustomed to. 
Consumerism is a sickness, by the way. So here we are, not in control of our non-renewable resource development. So we, we go, okay, what are our options? We have this renewable resources. We have the land. We have seals. We have the animals that we've lived alongside with and taken care of and lived with and been part of for thousands of years. So until the 70s, we were happily selling our um, pelts of the seals that we eat anyway, right? They're our cows. And because there's no vegetation in the wintertime, you know, we, we, we live off animals, a, a diet of souls. And whether or not you're eating plant or animal, we live off the freshness of life. So when the seal ban was implemented in the 70s, the suicide rate spiked because people were not, not in control of their environment or able to provide or buy more snowmobiles to hunt or buy rifles. Or The food is very expensive because it's all flown up by jet. So the seal hunt, there's only like, like 42 to 47,000 Inuit. This seal hunt is vitally, vitally important to our health, like physically and economically and spiritually even, because to be able to provide is a beautiful thing. So I've always talked openly about being very pro-seal hunt because I know the animals, I know the land, I know where we're from. And then you have a bunch of people. We're already cornered. And then you have a bunch of people from fucking California eating their organic avocado, like telling us not to eat meat. Like, can anyone comprehend how fucking mad I am? Like, it's just, I can't believe it. So we're cornered in one way, cornered in another way, and then we try to sell our own resources that are the only thing left available to us, and you have these judgmental pricks with, like, fucking slaughterhouses 10 clicks from their house judging us for eating, judging us for a living. It just feels like people just want us to die, and... So I posted this photo. I wanted, <laughs> I, I love this um, picture. It's so cute. I should have brought it. But <clears throat> what I thing I always found very interesting is um, a lot of people that eat meat, they're happy to put like the hamburger. It can, a certain part of the animal can touch only your hands and the inside of your mouth. <laughs> but if you saw a dead cow and someone said, touch it, you'd go, ew! <laughs> so fucking ridiculous! <laughs> it's so ridiculous, like that's a, you're eating it, how can you look at a dead animal and be disgusted with it, and then at the same time put it in your mouth? Anyway, so uh, we were at this elders camp, and uh, beautiful elders camp, tents and uh, bannock and tea and one of the nephews came up on the boat with a seal and my baby was small then Inuya was not even one years old and I thought okay this is a good message to to meat eaters to respect your meat and understand where it comes from and if you're too bullshit to touch a dead animal. You shouldn't be eating meat in the first place. So I put my baby, uh, this elder said, oh, wouldn't, he, wouldn't it be cute if 
baby could amamak from the or breastfeed from the seal because their their milk is really rich. So I put baby next to the seal, touching side by side. The seal was still warm, just kind of to show. Look, these are equals. These beings are they're equal to each other. They're the same. We're all flesh. It was a very beautiful message from an Inuk perspective. And I um, posted it online, so naive. I posted it online, and for three and a half months, I was abused by these animal rights activists. One man even photoshopped my baby being killed. Like, and I'm so mad. Like, I'm so fucking mad. I want to find the man who did that and, like, be in a room with me, fucking coward. I wish I could find him. Like, be in the same room with me. I fucking challenge you to do that in front of my face. So you're not going to walk out of the room. That's for sure. So, I don't know. It's like people, the judgment that comes from all around, from the world. That's why we're in a difficult place. So, culturally, I think it's very important to be very awake before you start judging other people's culture. Because if you're not living in it, you don't know it. You shouldn't place your judgments on it because our own culture is full of so many flaws, you know? Sorry. <laughs> well, I'm so mad. <laughs> and, and, and just to, to kind of complete the thought, that is, that is, you know, you're talking about missing and murdered Indigenous women and having these screens with all of these names and that entire message, that statement was lost because people were fixated on, on the seal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people are more worried about the seals than they are about us dying, being killed. Um, the animals at home live a much better life than any of us could ever dream of living. That land is the most beautiful, pristine land, and you live in a calm, clean, perfect way. And we, you know, if you're a good hunter, you kill an animal one shot right in the head and they don't even know you're there because if an animal starts running and get ag gets agitated, the adrenaline can taint the taste of the meat and make it hard. Like, it's best to kill an animal without them even knowing you're there and with one shot and it's the most humane and beautiful way to go and humane and beautiful way to live like they have incredible lives nothing compared to um how terrible it must be in a slaughterhouse and being raised in that way so that's what i mean next time you hear anyone saying anything about seals please remind them to take a look at themselves and that people are dying at home because if we had more financial resources to to build rehabilitation facilities and to pay good doctors to come to have better health care, like my mom couldn't get a mammogram for years. You know, like if we had the resources, if we had um, more at our fingertips to raise the quality of life, then that would help with the statistics. So really, you're the bad guy. If you're against the seal hunt, you're the bad guy. And I think I just want people to know that and to remove their judgment. Because it's even, I don't know much about the East Coast, but I know that they're not rich there either. And they live, they live off the ocean as well. 
There's not, it's not a big, high population of people. And a lot of propaganda out there says that um, we're up. Uh, yeah, like the, thing, the things that were being tweeted at me, like savage Eskimo cunt, I hope you drown and die on Mother's Day. Like just for months and months and months, little Eskimo slut, fucking Inuk bitch, just die, die, die. You're going to get your karma, you're going to die. And it's these people so drunk on suffering, so drunk on animal suffering that they know that they can't have power with big corporations like McDonald's or, you know, they know they don't have power. So they take their passion and try to execute it where they can, you know, but in, in, in effect, you end up this big giant bully to a very uh, impoverished and... Um, kind of a, a population that's having a lot of social difficulties right now due to the, the ripple effects of colonialism. It's very important that we spread this message. And I really w wish that more people would wear seal. Like, I was giggling. I was like, oh, these colonialists are visiting, eh? That Kate should wear a sealskin coat. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about the Kate, royal visit? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's like, yeah, look, your royals are here. How come we? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Feudalism. Um, I think you know. Sometimes people who come from marginalized groups often feel like it's a burden to have to talk about this kind of stuff when they're making art as well. Obviously, I know you don't feel like that, um, but do you feel any pressure at all to represent your community in a specific way? I've removed myself from worrying about what I'd say or do as a representative for an entire group of people. I am not the voice of Inuit people in entirety because plenty of them were upset with me for breaking tradition to throat sing alone, right? So, I and there's a older generation of Inuit that are very infected by Christianity. So there, there's uh, different groups. Like, like I said, none of it spans across the entire continent. So I can't possibly claim to represent everyone, but I know that everything I say and feel comes from a place of wanting safety for, you know, kids and people. So I'm not, I don't feel bad. I just don't, I am not going to be, I'm not going to feel like I can't be an individual and have my own opinions and say what I want to say. And I'm also hoping that uh, people can glean that I'm benevolent. It's, you know, I'm not... Um, coming at this for any reason. I'm not in politics. I just want kids to be okay. I want things to be a little better for people. I think that's a nice note to end on. Yay! <laughs> hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. 
Before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world traveling series of music workshops and festivals. Almost every year since 1998, we've done the main Academy event in one city. Uh, the lecture you just heard, for instance, was from the Academy in Montreal. But we do events around the world throughout the year. And among other things, we've got an online radio station and an online magazine. In short, it's a lot of stuff. It's all pretty cool, in my opinion, anyway. But if you want to find out more for yourself, you can check us out at Red Bull Music Academy dot com.